so many things that we have going on right now. Transitions are scary and they're also really exciting, both at the same time. Uh, thank you for so many that are happening right now in our church life, in our community life here. And uh, they're always reminders, if we let them be, they're reminders to turn back to you and to uh, ask you how to navigate, be a light unto our paths. So we ask that you do that. We ask for VBS, all the workers, all of the uh, kiddos that will be here, the parents who bring the kids here. We pray for your effect, and uh, we really want that to occur. We want to align with you and what you have going on there. We also are so thankful for our retreat that will be coming up. Um, we're getting excitement building there. And, Lord, we do ask for Barry's family for comfort. Um, <clears throat> We remember that the Holy is primarily described as a comforter. There's a reason for that. And in times like this, we really need, as we remember uh, a very unique person who brought, brought so much life uh, to the world. Thank you. Um, thank you so much, God. So right now, help us as we gather to enjoy each other's company, to glean some things that will be helpful to us. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> Amen. So um, I'm going to ask for permission. I didn't have to use one of these for a service, which I was glad. Last week, if you remember, I mentioned my throat was getting a little hoarse and a little scratchy. Man, I got it Monday. I was slept like half the day Monday, slept all day Tuesday. I was down hard. But um, I'm now kind of just recovering, so I'm going to ask for the freedom to take a sip every now and then. This isn't whiskey. None of you could judge. Anyway, so uh, good. here's what we're going to talk about today, because this uh, behind me gives us an opportunity to kind of look at some things that maybe we wouldn't typically take advantage of, and that's like what is going on with our children. The Bible talks plenty, but not copious amounts about raising our children. And I think every now and then we can take advantage of circumstances and say, so what does that look like now for us? How many of you have children currently in your home, you're raising offspring in your home? A whole bunch of you. First service, it was less than 12. And that we've kind of on purpose... Not to divide the generations, I do want you to know as part of our strategy as a church, but to have a robust children's ministry. We do it in the second service. We have found that typically is easier for more families to attend. And through the years, how many of you are families that started coming within the last year or two and you have brought children to our children's ministry? There's a few of you in here. Great. That has a regular occurrence for us as a church. We hear it, that people is like, we, we come here and we love what you do with our children. How many of you are grandparents and have kids that are within your purview because of the great-grandparent tractor beam? How many of that's you? Yeah, there's uh, not as many as, as people with kiddos at home. So you have direct contact. How many of you have neighbors who have kids with whom you occasionally interact with those kids? How many of you, that's you? Yeah, see, there's more. Pretty quickly, you get to the, the fact and the realization that if we pay attention, we all have opportunities to affect the lives of children. And it's worth thinking 
theologically, what does God have in mind related to raising our children? Um, I wish I had, well, let me just ask, maybe one of you know this. What's the magic formula on raising kids? Any of you guys know this? Uh, Yeah, right? That is not how this works. Remember, the Bible never presented itself as a potion book. That's very, very important. Because a lot of times we have a tendency to think that, oh, there's some magic. No, it is filled with a ton of wisdom. It's also filled with a, a bunch of commandments. It's also filled with some ideas that are like, this could go either direction, it's, and it's got some inklings in it, right? That's how the Bible works. So we're going to look and see. I'm going to jump right on the first one because it's worthy of something. Here's what I want you to hear in this. Not only is this concept important for you in raising children, this is one of the keys to which I refer often to understand how to, under, to like view most of the topics in the Bible is this issue, and that is disciplining your child. How many of you like this part? How many of you like what the Bible says about this? Uh, yeah, that's a little bit different. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to look here and review what the Bible says across its trajectory of its pages about disciplining children and see what we can learn, not only about disciplining children and raising children, but also about interpreting the Bible because we can actually do that. If you have uh, these, go ahead and open and turn in your personal electronic device to Deuteronomy chapter 21. And we're going to put these up on the screen if you want to follow along that way. You're welcome to. Uh, These center sections of Deuteronomy 18, 19, 20, 21, 22, 23 are some of the harshest. If you just take them, pluck them out, and read them, they're harsh in tone as God is trying to never, ever forget this in the law code as we have received it through Moses, God is trying to recalibrate a slave nation. That is a crucial part of understanding the backstory. These are not healthy people who have had a number of healthy, powerful arrangements with the neighbors around them. They have been under subjection for centuries, four centuries. And God is trying to recalibrate that people's thinking. So that should help you, give you a clue. This verse says this, if someone has a stubborn and rebellious son, (coughs) excuse me, how old is that child right there? Stubborn and rebellious. 19? I got a bunch of answers in the first service because they were referring to somebody they knew. Like, oh yeah, that's 16. That's a 16-year-old kid. Maybe. Is that a nine-month-old? I don't know. But if someone has a stubborn and rebellious son who does not obey his father and mother and will not listen to them when they discipline him, so there's the concept where we're going, his father and mother will take hold of him, I suppose by the ear, and bring him to the elders at the gate of his town. This was the common scenario in the ancient Near East. The elders sat at the gates, and they kind of represented the authority. This is what our town is all about. So you take them to the elders, and they shall say to the elders, this son of ours is stubborn and rebellious. He'll not obey us. He's a glutton and a drunkard. Now how old is that person? Right? 
Uh, probably not nine months at, at this point. So there's something going on that's a developed pattern. That's very important to understanding this. Then all the men of his town are to stone him to death. In the Hebrew, you know what that says? They're to stone him to death. There's no exit strategy from that statement. That's pretty darn harsh, is it not? Now, let me just tell you a couple things about ancient stonings. First of all, it's very important that the town is doing this. This is not an individual doing this. This is the entire community is doing this. We'll hear about that a little bit more in a second. Second of all, they didn't like throw a million pebbles at him. Okay, uh, it's not, don't imagine David with the slingshot or that kind of a thing. These are stones like this. If you can pick it up and you can throw it, you throw it and you not only just throw a couple and then let them suffer, it is you kill them pretty quickly with stones that end the life. And then they would build a big pile and leave it there as evidence of the fact that somebody was disobedient and you remember that guy buried under there? It actually refers to that. Then all the men of his town are to stone him to death, and you must purge the evil from among you. I'll talk about that in a second. All Israel will hear of it and be afraid. Afraid of what? <coughs> Excuse me. Afraid of the, the remembrance that it's actually possible that the community decides you are irreparably and irreconcilably out. It's a big deal, right? Now, let me give you a couple of other things. First of all, you must purge the evil from among you. That phrase is used all over the place in the Old Testament, referring to idols. That exact phrase. And so the idea is, this rebellion is so strong that it might even be a rejection of God. It might have gone to that point. And it's just as dangerous as if we were accepting idols into our scenario. That's a pretty big deal right? And we also don't know if this was ever really done. We know of stonings that occur, whether this really happened with children of parents in some random town up in the tribe of Dan. We don't hear reports of this. This is not something that happened every week. It's a pretty big concept because you say, wow, that's how it works? Yes. We're going to come back here in a minute but I want you to just realize and feel the weight of this. This is a big deal. Now, I want you to know this. In many of the other ancient codes around, the individual father had the right to make the decision by himself to execute his rebellious child. So already you see something different. What God has done is said, this is a community decision no different from our legal system in a lot of ways. This is a community decision that the elders have been a part of. Everybody in the town partakes in. So it would have to be to the point of absolutely nothing we can do with this person. They are going to take us all down the drain. That is very different from the, the nations around, where the father could say, hey, I just am tired of you. Take him out back and execute him. Okay. Now let's go to the next passage. I'll refer back there in just a minute. This is, so the Exodus is the setting for all of the, the Moses law, the Mosaic law. And it's anywhere from 1250 B.C., 1450 B.C., somewhere in there. There's a lot of uncertainty. But it's that old. 
Okay? Now we go forward to the time of the kings, the monarchy, and you're talking David and, and Solomon, you're talking a thousand. So it's several centuries later in Israel's development. And what Solomon would do was he was known for gathering wise people around and scholars to, to get wise sayings and collect those and put those in the books. And that's what the book of Proverbs is. It's not like Solomon said all of those sentences. That's ridiculous. They gathered it from all around. This is wisdom, pooled wisdom. Now, here was the pooled wisdom about 900 years or so before Jesus. Whoever spares the rod hates their children, but the one who loves their children is careful to discipline them. Okay, so there's hatred and love. There's a strong connection there. Folly is bound up in the heart of a child, but the rod of discipline will drive it far away. That verse, word for word, is in there twice. Two different chapters. A rod and a reprimand impart wisdom, but a child left undisciplined disgraces its mother. Discipline your children, they'll give you peace, they'll bring you the delights that you desire. You see the contrast there of the, the win and the loss. Now, how does this one feel to you? How many of you grew up, spare the rod, spoil the child? <clears throat> yeah, that was my household, I promise you that. Um, this And there's all kinds of Bible verses right here to prove that. Right Now, by the way, what are we talking about with a rod? Um, how many of you know the rule of thumb? You know about the rule of thumb? In England, there's an actual law. I don't know if it's still enforced. Probably not. But the law that was you could beat your wife with a stick, but the stick could not be any bigger around than your thumb. Did you know that was where that came from? Rule of thumb. And so this is more like a switch. Uh, sometimes, and by the way, this was exacted on adults. It was exactly on everybody across the culture because the belief was that just leaving a person without any kind of punishment is not going to help them at all. There's no correction whatsoever. And we have to literally beat the hell out of them is what we're doing. That was the belief. Now, how does that feel? Does it feel so good, does it? How does this compare to the last passage? What happened in the last passage? Execution, right? If it goes bad enough, you execute. That was an approved legal stance of parenting. You execute your child if you can't get them to be corrected. Here, do you see the movement that just happened? It went like this. Now, it went to an ideology that we cannot embrace or approve, right? We can't possibly say this is a great idea. And in fact, though, you go back even uh, just a couple generations ago, they would clearly use this. They probably hung... My mom, I think, had that, that center verse hanging on the wall, and right hanging next to the paddle, you know, that was right there for all of us. <clears throat> because, yes, the Bible tells me I need to beat this out of you. Now, are we realizing some things? Well, maybe. Could we defend it? Well, maybe. Why do you not think this is a good idea. Why do you not think the last one is a good idea? That's where I'm trying to get. Now, we're going to go to the next passage. Thankfully, it gets a little better. And this is in uh, Ephesians chapter 6. It's almost word for word. It's a little bit more detailed here than it is in Colossians 3. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. A very simple statement. Honor your father and mother. What is that? 
the fifth commandment, right, in the Decalogue. So, I mean, he's referring to something that's pretty anchored in to their thinking. And that's the first commandment that's given with a promise that says, so that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy long life on the earth. It says a few more things after that in the law, but it actually has a connection to it to say, if you obey, then actually there's benefits for you. It doesn't say what won't happen to you. In other words, like, oh, now you'll never get sick and your crops will always come in in a positive way and none of your animals will run away and your wife will always love you. It doesn't say any of those kind of benefits specifically, but it says if you honor your father and mother, then it's to your benefit. And fathers, don't exasperate your children. This is such a fascinating word. It's got this sense that is more like don't mess with your kid. Don't manipulate your kid. Don't twist things around to get your way with your kid. How many of you have hit a place in your parenting or grandparenting where it's like, uh-oh, I don't know what to do right now? <clears throat> How many of you have done Yeah, thank you for being honest. The first service had a hard time relating to that for some reason. They had all done it well, I guess. I might mess with you. But the truth is, you get to this place where all of a sudden you don't know what to do. Oh, this is a bigger issue. I never thought this would happen in my kid's life. Uh, you get to a place where, oh man, I, I thought I knew. And here's what we do. We go into these weird default modes. We like get paralyzed with fear a lot of times. I don't know what to do, so I'll do nothing. Or we go to the default setting, which who's the default setting? Your mom and dad. How did my dad do it? And so I'll do it the way my dad did it. And you got to just deal with it because you're under my roof, right? We do that thing. That is so manipulative. Do you really even hear what that is? That has nothing to do with this relationship at all with these two people. That like tractor beams in somebody from the last generation. Or sometimes what we do is we say, well, I'm going to start coming up with a methodology. We'll get the reaction that I need from the kid by hook or by crook. It's all fair game. If I have to manipulate, if I have to, you know, come up with some way to incentivize, whatever I have to do. Take away this, give that. We do all these weird things that have nothing to do with the real issue. And it's very exasperating to children because they don't have any idea how this connects to that. Fathers, don't exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. And go to the next passage. <clears throat> this is in Second Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, and this is Paul talking about a church, but look at his metaphors. Instead, we were like young children among you. Now you think that's the metaphor he's going to work, but he switches. Just as a nursing mother cares for her children, so we cared for you. Puts that imagery, a nursing mom, it's beautiful. And because we loved you so much, we were to share with you not only the gospel of our God, but our lives as well. This is a switch from what is happening in the Roman Empire. Typically, kids were there for the benefit of the adults. In this case, Paul says, I'm flipping it around. When we love you, we love you like a nursing mom who gives of herself to benefit the children. This sounds a lot better, doesn't it? It really does. 
For, you know, a couple verses later, he changes the metaphor again. You know that we dealt with you, each of you, as a father deals with his own children. Now, it's a father role, and this is what a good father does. Encouraging, comforting, urging you to live lives worthy of God, who calls you into his kingdom and glory. Now, what happened to the rod? What happened to the executioner? Now, let me ask you this. This is right where we go to hermeneutics, which is the big fancy word for how you interpret the Bible. Which of those three passages are you going to obey? You can't obey them all. You have to decide. Now, here's what we do. Often we go, well, I hate those old ones, so just throw them away. If we do that, what we miss is how redemptive God was being in that circumstance. We miss, there's a trajectory moving here. There's a motion that God is accomplishing through the scripture. And if we just chuck the Old Testament out because we don't like it, we miss how God's grace is actually moving us towards his kingdom. Or what we do is we go, well, I'll just pick the last one because that must trump the other ones. I've heard people do that with Jesus' words so many times. Well, those are the words of Jesus, so that obviously then what Moses said didn't matter. That's ridiculous thinking. Jesus himself said, I came to fulfill what has been planted ahead of time before me. So what this does, this is such a great model to help us understand and understand our parenting skills, is that there... 2,000 years ago, this was the step. But are there more steps past that in the last millennia that God has said, hey, it's more like my heart. It's more redemptive. It's more like my kingdom design to actually behave into this. Not just, oh, like, when can I go back and grab pieces and parts of this? But actually, there's a movement. This is redemptive theology. This is the thinking that says, like God, I'm moving people in a direction. And by the way, real simply, this is how you actually can say slavery is a terrible idea and do it with a biblical mindset because the Bible never ends slavery, not even remotely. What the Bible does do, though, is treat slaves in different ways along the time you get to Paul. It's an astounding thing when Paul says to Philemon, hey, that slave Onesimus, treat him just like he was one of our Christian brothers on the same level. That is unheard of in the Roman culture. Almost nobody was thinking like that. There were way more slaves in the Roman culture than there were free people. And they treated the slaves usually like animals. Paul raises the specter. And then you say, okay, so when we come along in our history where people are saying maybe we need to get rid of, sl- of slavery, absolutely that's a trajectory movement that goes along with what God has been doing through history. So then the question is, what about parenting now? What about parenting now? It's tough, isn't it? It's tricky. Um, Never forget this. First of all, the kid's perspective is very different from yours. Uh, There's a kid that walks into a church. It's kind of an old school kind of a church. 
and it's got the the kind of the narthex thing, but they would have called it a foyer, and it connects the halls. And down the hall, there's a big plaque on the wall. It's got a bunch of names with pictures and stuff on there. But the top line, he can't read because it's in fancy cursive. So he grabs his dad, he brings him down the hall, says, Dad, what does that say up there? He says, this is in memory of all those who died in the services. And the kid kind of took a big gulp and said, is that first service or second service? <laughs> right? They have a different perspective. Don't give them more credit developmentally than what they can carry. Please don't do that. Treat them like Paul was talking about to the Thessalonians. I'm gauging how you're doing. And in that, I respond. And I have appropriate expectations for you based on that. Not expect you to think like a 47-year-old. That's one easy reference, but hard to remember often in the, in the moment. Don't give your kid more... Fight for your kid's well-being. Come alongside of them. Actually help them determine what they understand so that you understand it and then deal with that on that level. That's one strong suggestion. Another is this. Invest in thinking that will help build their worldview in a Christian sense. Right now in our culture, in this country, this is how it is. There is no common voice that is a Christian, godly, cultural approach to life. It's individualistic. You do what was best for you. It's naturalistic. We don't need no God or any kind of a, anybody else to tell, that, tell us what to do. It's very freedom-oriented. You have your rights. You should be able to do what you want. It is nothing to do. If it's religious at all, it's pluralistic in that it says, oh, anybody's okay, whatever they think about God. As long as they think about God, it's all okay. Those are the messages that are regularly going from every media outlet and every influencer in children's lives. That's your kids, your grandkids, the kids next door to you, all of them. That's all they hear. Find ways. Be creative. Do whatever you can to insert God's thinking, and particularly scriptural thinking. How many of you grew up memorizing the Bible with, as a family? How many of you did that? See, I had a lot more hands in the first service because they're all baby boomers. It was much more common. Now we don't do that as a... And if you don't do it with them, nobody else will do that for them. I honestly, now still to this day, the things I learned in Awana, a great program that Rocky Mountain Bible Church does, am I ever grateful for that? Julie and I are talking about having more scripture memorization processes with our children's ministry here because I still go back and reference the old King James verses when I hear about a topic and I want to know, what does God think about this? Bam, those verses come back from all those years later. And by the way, it helps explain some of this. Because when I was a nine, by the way, by the way, by the way, second by the way, on top of the other by the way, we, we decorate this in here for the parents, not for the children. The kids don't care. We could put these cutouts up here and shoot confetti cannons and the kids would have a blast. They don't care. 
the parents walk in and they go, these people give a rip about my kid. This matters to them. That's a message that we're trying to send. But when I was a nine-year-old kid, part of why I'm so invested in it is I still remember the details of the first VBS I went to. My family was not a Christian family. My parents divorced. My mom's a single mom. She's doing the thing a lot of parents do. How many VBSs or any kind of program I can send my kid to for the summer, right? And so I don't know that. I go to this thing. It was, I'm old enough that it was moon Based. That was like, you know, moonshot thing, like going to the stars or the galaxy of God or whatever it was. And they actually had a real moon rock. I can see the cabinet. I can still see that crazy thing. I also remember the influence of the people and thinking, man, you know, that, it resonated with me. And I remember learning Bible verses. I remember sitting in the chair and, and using this thing where they erased the word off the board. You remember that? method. I still remember that. It has influence. And here's my last suggestion, and this is it. Parent more with this next generation or two than to this next generation or two. I'm going to try to simplify this because this is, is a pretty big deal, and we could talk about this for a month. But the truth is, most of human history, human development... Almost nothing changed for thousands of years in our history. About 200 years ago, after the Enlightenment, the Industrial Revolution, it just ramped. We had all of this great capacity that came in because of technology and travel and the ability to store information and communication. You can call anybody in the world for free. Do you know how ridiculous that concept was just a couple of years ago? right? And all of this went on. And here's what we did with our educational system. We decided what we need to do, this is because of the enlightenment and the the idea of progress. We need to just tell people, live into those good things that we keep developing like that. Be, live your dreams. Um, be the you, you can be. What even means? I don't even ever know what that means. Do, you know, uh, just fulfill your destiny and do all this. I mean, this is all the messaging, right? All the positive side. And here's what the church knows that the rest of the entire population forgot. And that is, as we did this in our trajectory, we opposite and equally did this in our trajectory. The example I refer to is we figured out that there's atoms. We have the capacity now with nuclear development to power whole cities with relatively small amounts of uranium, whatever that even is, and it's unthought of just a couple of generations ago that that was possible. But when we figured that out, we also figured out you can accelerate one of those things and you can create one weapon that's this big that you can drop out of a plane and wipe out a city. And if you look at it, every one of our wonderful, positive progress things has had an equal and opposite down power for evil. And we've figured out ways to use them. But we keep telling our children, just live into the positive side and forget about this. In fact, we vilify the the people who would do anything terrible like that. So we marginalize them and we don't even want to think. All of us and all of those children have the capacity equally to do good and evil. That's the truth.
And it's unprecedented in human history. So if we think navigating it looks like it would have looked like in the 30s, we are asleep at the wheel. Asleep at the wheel. The stuff that your kids get from their phone or from their friend's phone is unbelievably powerful, positively and negatively. For us to figure that out, we're going to have to partner with each other. We're going to have to partner with our kids because if you think this isn't true, you're not paying attention. You don't know what to do with this. We just handed these to everybody. We didn't even build an ethic. We didn't do anything that was productive for the society. We said, here you go, here you go, here you go, here you go. You have to help your child, not by just thinking, oh man, maybe they'll never get, please. Bubble wrap him, put him in his room. He's still going to get the information. So we are going to have to partner with our children and with each other. And otherwise, we're going to be in big trouble. I hope that's helpful for you to understand and to say, look, the trajectory is what the trajectory is. God always has redemptive things in mind. We can positively move that direction, but not just do that. We have to always realize that the power and the strength of evil in the human heart is in, it's just incorrigible. It's unbelievable. And we need to deal with both sides. And only people who are truly honest with themselves and with God will deal with this side in an appropriate way. Let's pray. Lord, thank you. Um, this is big stuff. It's difficult. It's complicated. But you've given us children to be in our lives around us. And you've given us each other as adults. I pray for uh, grandparents, great-grandparents, that they would rally, find parents of children and move into their lives, help them navigate. Pray that uh, parents would learn how to um, actually embrace their children as partners in a very difficult journey right now. I pray that you'll give us the spirit that Paul talked about from Jesus, that of uh, giving of ourselves for their benefit and of love and encouragement and spurring on towards godly living. Thank you, Lord, for uh, giving us strength and guidance. We honor and worship you in Jesus' name. Amen.